Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas, from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167, or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Milk Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today we chat with Chef Angie Marr. She's co-owner of New York's Beatrice Inn. It was a speakeasy frequented by Ernest Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and Lindsay Lohan. Marr offers a 160-day-aged tomahawk ribeye, which absorbs a full bottle of single malt whiskey a week and sells for over $700. This steak is one of the most polarizing dishes in the industry, you know, and I, and I love that because I feel like, you know, if, if everybody loved what we did, then we'd be mediocre, right? We've got to, like, create a little waves because that's how you know you're doing something new. Also coming up, Dan Pashman tells us how grown-ups could get more out of Halloween. We whip up Tunisian chickpeas with Swiss chard. But now it's my interview with writer Deborah Ager who recently wrote an article about the Brewery Collectibles Club of America. Deborah, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. This sounds like a joke. What do a plumber, a drill sergeant, engineer, a subway track mechanic, a pawn shop manager, retired army colonel, and a banker all have in common? I think I know the answer. They all collect beer cans. <laughs> you wrote an, uh, an article about this. This is not some casual hobby this is some serious business. Yes. They meet in what they call conventions, <laughs> and they meet in hotels across America. They started out trading beer cans, and actually money was forbidden from the show floor for many years. And then eventually, at some point, people began to sell cans to each other. And there are cans that are sold for thousands of dollars. So let's go back into the history of beer cans. So when was the first beer can manufactured? And did it look like the beer can today? Did they go through different evolution of style and, and, and how you open it? Yeah, well, the official birthday of the beer can is way back in 1935. And the first company to use beer cans was called Kruger. They started out with flat top cans. 
and you needed to have a can opener in order to open up that can. And, um, and then later, I think it was in the 60s, about 1963 or 1962, that they came up with the pull tabs, which are a little bit more similar to the ones that we're used to seeing today. So I guess it's like everything else. It's all about the rarity of the item. It's about the condition. I assume they're ranked in different conditions. Is there some terminology to refer to the very best quality versus the rusty cans? Well, it's kind of funny because for the rusty cans, there's a group that call themselves the Rusty Bunch. And for the really nice ones, they're called mint, you know, when they're in mint condition. And there's actually someone I wrote about in the article. He's known among the other collectors for having a very, I think somebody referred to it as a squeaky clean collection. Where where do you find a can from the 1930s? You're going through landfills. Uh, You mentioned in your article people are digging in the woods. I mean, how do you, (laughs) where do you look in the woods to find beer cans? Yeah, so the best places to look are where you think people gathered to drink beer in the 1930s. So that would be out in the country usually, um, someplace that's not yet covered over with cement. And one person I talked to was traveling through Maine, going to old campsites and looking for where they would gather, you know, gather at the fire pit, and then they would throw their cans off into the woods, and then those make their way down into the ground and get saved. And then, as I wrote about in the article, my husband found one on the side of the CNO Canal, you know, right in Washington, D.C. And sometimes people find them when they're doing construction. Maybe they're renovating a house. Maybe they're tearing right. down a house. They might find them in the walls. Okay. People collect all sorts of stuff, uh, you know, Star Wars, memorabilia, it's everything. Is there anything particularly unusual about this group? I think what I find unusual about the group is the range of, of people in it. A lot of people with different opinions and different backgrounds and different kinds of professions, and yet they all unite around beer cans. During World War II, Meisterbrau made hundreds of thousands or millions of cans of beer sent overseas to our soldiers. And today there's only one sole survivor, which sold for, I don't know, $15,000. So it's kind of interesting. Uh, You're collecting something where they made millions and only one is left. Yeah, it is sort of interesting. And, you know, a story I've heard a lot in the collecting community is is when someone thinks a can is rather rare and then suddenly someone finds 20 of them or someone finds a whole, you know, 100 of them in some strange place and then suddenly the can loses its value. Um, You know, actually when the BCCA was formed, the Brewery Collectibles Club of America was formed, the industry began to create cans just for people to collect. And by creating so many of those cans, they actually devalued them. So some of them, like the Billy Beer can, there's so many of those that they don't really have much value. But it's sort of interesting to think about, you know, how many is there of any can? Because we can think there's one, but there might not be just one. There might be some we haven't discovered yet. So a lot of these cans had some pretty interesting artwork on them. Uh, Did some of that artwork really reflect a very specific time and place in our culture that maybe seems a bit out of date now? I think that's entirely true, not only with the design and coloring and the font, but also just sometimes how elements of the overall culture at that time or overall thinking was presented. So one example of cans that I always found somewhat interesting revolved around women who were women who were awarded a chance to appear on a beer can. And so you would never really have that at this point. Um, there was something called the Miss Rheingold contest. And if you won the contest, you would be able to appear on the Rheingold beer can. So uh, we used to have some of those in our house until we sold them. <laughs> 
Are there any myths like there are in all collector groups about cans that people have never found or rumors about cans or the rare can that got away or someone just found in a garbage can and it was worth $10,000? There was one story that I wrote about in the article in which one collector had been trying to buy a collection for about five years. And so he tried postcards, he tried letters, he tried meeting with the person in person. And then finally, he, I think he sent cra- crab balls, and I guess the crab balls did the trick, and so he ended up with this collection. So that's one of my favorite stories, because <laughs> it just shows the patience that you sometimes have to have if, if you really want a certain kind of can or group of cans. So I guess your husband's a beer can collector. Does he collect any specific time period or design or maybe brewery? He focuses on cans from California. He's also one of the the rusty bunch people and that he is okay with rust and some of his cans do have rust on it. You know, I, I know some collectors whose significant others tell them that they can collect, but they can only have so many of one item. So is there a limit in your household about how many beer cans your husband can collect? There is no limit. And he's lucky in that he married a collector. So even before I knew he owned beer cans, Uh, I collected postcards as a kid, and then my husband and I together began to collect this 1950s furniture called Haywood Wakefield, and we also began to collect isomats, these ice crushers that were used probably in the 50s and 60s to make drinks. Um, So we've had our different collections over the years, so he's he's very fortunate in that way because I never tell him he has to have fewer beer cans. Deborah, thank you so much. Uh, Now I know a little bit more about collecting beer cans. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. That was writer Deborah Ager. Her article for Narratively is called They Meet Up in Motels Across America to Trade Old Beer Cans. Right now, my co-host Sarah Malt and I will be answering your questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101 and star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on Public Television. Sarah, what's going on? Um, not much. Now, you worked at Gourmet for many years. I right? did. Were you, were you there at the very end? Oh, God, yes. Yeah, so let me ask about that, because I interviewed Ruth Reichel about that last day. So were you actually in the office that day? No, I was in the farmer's market shooting for my cookbook. And did you get a phone call? I got call? a phone call from my sous chef. She was crying. Oh. And she said, they're shutting down the magazine. We have to be out by tomorrow night. Was this something you thought was going to happen, or it was a complete shock? No. I had a feeling it might happen. Uh, hmm. There were so many red flags, and I worked on the advertising side, so I knew that we were lacking money. You can't have editorial without the advertising. So it wasn't a complete shock. And, you know, the interesting thing is it was sort of time for me to leave Gourmet, but I would never have left it for a whole bunch of reasons. But I was actually, don't tell anybody, sort of delighted. Really? Yes. Huh. I needed to move on to the next chapter but I would never have made it happen someone, myself. It was a large boot <laughs> that, that <laughs> anyway. helped you move on. Anyway, okay. I guess uh, a good thing came out of a bad ending. That's right. Sarah, time to take some calls. Yes. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Carla. Carla, and where are you calling from? Charleston, South Carolina. How can we help you? I bought some alligator at a farmer's market in Somerville. It was alligator bites are about two-inch um, squares or rectangles and oh, maybe a quarter to probably a half an inch thick, and they're frozen. I've eaten alligator in restaurants, but I've never prepared it before. 
And I looked up some recipes and I talked to people and there was a lot of variation. And I don't know what I should do so they'll be tender. I don't want to fry it because I avoid fried food. I like them blackened. Um, I think I'd like it in a, like a gumbo soup or stew. Somebody told me to marinate it overnight in bourbon, and it would take the wild taste out of it. But then somebody else said that would make it too sweet. So what do you think? I wouldn't waste good bourbon on alligator. <laughs> I'd rather drink it. Um, <laughs> I've had alligator years ago. It has a gaminess to it, which is distinctive, I'd say that. I assume this is from the tail, the sort of the tenderloin, not from the leg. Mm-hmm. But do you know where it uh, came yeah, from? Because that makes a huge yeah. difference. The tail part is much less gamey right. and is much more tender. Did it say what cut it was, where it was from? No, it didn't. I assume that it's alligator tail, though. Yeah. I would just pound it like a chicken and make a chicken cutlet, and I would bread it or I would coat it with egg white and breadcrumbs or flour and egg and breadcrumbs, and I would just saute it in a little bit of olive oil and season the breadcrumbs if you want. Or as you said, you could use mm-hmm. it in a braise it in a stew if you want. In olive oil, I would cook some onions, some spices with that, then put in the alligator chunks, saute that briefly, add a little bit of liquid and cook it very slowly in a skillet or a Dutch mm-hmm. oven. Those would be two things I would do. I know that Sarah's Ms. Soup, you make a soup with this? You sure could. I was also going to say if you're concerned mm-hmm. about the gaminess, the best luck I've had is soaking it in milk. Mm-hmm. Straight milk or yeah, buttermilk. That's milk. what I was thinking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, um, that would tenderize it too. Yeah. It tends to be tough. Right. And then maybe add a tiny bit of salt. So a buttermilk or milk brine overnight and then uh-huh. pat it dry. And you said you like grilling, blackening it. I think I would blacken it in a skillet, or somebody said you can even put blackening spices on it and just grill it. There's a Spanish dish, pinchos moranos, which is slices of pork or whatever you have the right size. You said they're two inches. You create a spice mix, which could be a blackened mix, whatever you want, Mm -hmm. with some salt. Cover that, Mm -hmm. toss that in a bowl, let it sit about 15 minutes. Cook them over very high heat in a skillet with a little bit of oil and and blacken those spices. And then serve it with a a little bit of a drizzle of whatever you like at the end. You could use an already existing spice mix and then just add some salt. So 15 minutes, let it sit. And then in a hot skillet, done. Be cooked in six minutes, seven minutes. I love turtle soup. And what do you think about making a turtle soup except with alligator meat? You know, with the sherry and... Yep. It's a, actually an excellent idea. I've I made, think it's a lovely idea. I've made turtle soup with turtle, but I've made turtle soup with calf's head, too. Substitute. Sarah, wait, why are you looking at me this way? What did you use? Uh, I used the chicken stock. I made my own stock for it. I would use chicken stock. Uh-huh. But the turtle soup's actually something people don't make anymore, but that, that would be the perfect substitute for turtle. Right. Know. Good for you. That's a very good idea. Yeah. yeah. All right. Try that. Good. Uh, Carla, thank you so much. Uh, that's the first time we've had a call about alligator. Really? Meat, yeah. You actually came up with the best solution. <laughs> yes. So. Yes, you did. Thanks for calling. Okay. Yeah. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Tom. Hi, Tom. Where are you calling from? Calling from Boston. Okay. Uh, I'm confused about leavening in dough, mainly the doughs that, like, it's not for our bread or our cake. I already bake my own sourdough bread using a starter, so I'm already familiar with that. Then I got on to the idea of making knishes mm-hmm. and looking through recipes for that dough. I got on to, like, doughs for strudel, dumplings, pierogies. 
there's all these different recipes. Some use baking soda. Some use like the the dried yeast. Some don't use any leavening at all. And so I was wondering if you could explain to me which recipes tend to use what kind of dough. Whether like even just for knish, some will use no leavening. Some will use baking soda for a leavening. And there's like some leavened dough, but then they roll it out flat. Can you help me to make sense of this? It just depends where the recipe's from and the style and the culture comes from. Some flatbreads around the world, there are hundreds of different recipes, for example. Some use leavener, some use yeast, some use baking powder, very few. Some use none at all. If you think about it as a casing for a filling, for kasha, for example, or potato, in some cases you need no leavening at all. It's just the style. It's just a question of the origin of the recipe, where it came from in the world, and what their tradition was. You can have leavening or not. It doesn't really matter. It's not like a yeast bread, right, Sarah? Right. Absolutely true. I think it was my second or third cookbook. I wanted to do a recipe for knishes, so I happened to live in New York City, and I went, do you ever come to New York? Yes, I do. Okay. Have you ever been to Jonas Schimmel? I know that's the legendary one, but I haven't actually been there. When I decided that I wanted to put a knish recipe in my book, I went down there and bought a whole bunch of them. But then I researched Mm -hmm. in all these. I have a lot of Jewish cookbooks, and I found just what you just said. Some of them used leavener. Some of them didn't. I ended up developing a recipe that did use a little bit of baking powder, I think it was, not soda. And it is baffling because it's not like it puffs up. It's a very mm-hmm. thin coating on the outside, but it worked just fine. Next time you're in New York, you have to go there because they have every knish known to man. I mean, they have the traditional ones, the kosh knish and the potato. They also have sweet potato and cabbage. They also have pizza knishes. What? They have dessert knishes. <laughs> but having told you all of this, I have made knishes with the leavener. It is baffling. I don't know why. I just did it. And I think Chris is right. It's just a matter of culture. And if you went there, you could actually ask them, do you use leavener in your dough for your coating? And then you could okay. call us back and let us know what the answer is. I'd be happy to do that. Anyway, thank you for calling. Thanks for calling. Thank you very yeah. much. Take Bye-bye. Care. This is Milstreet Radio. If you're stumped on a recipe, give us a call, 855-426-9843. Once again, 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at milkstreetradio.com. Hi, this is Eugen. How are you? Good, how are you? And where are you calling from? Um, I live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. How can we help you? Yeah, I had a question about cooking ground beef. So Uh whenever I cook ground beef, I have either two ways of doing it. I'll saute the aromatics such as garlic and onion in some oil or whatnot and then add the beef or... Sometimes I brown the beef uh, first and then remove the beef, and then I saute the onions and garlic. But I wasn't sure if there were any differences in terms of those two methods. That's actually a great question. When I do this, I would start with the meat and get it. It's not totally cooked, but it's not red inside. Take it out, and if there's too much fat in the pan, get rid of that or just as much as you want. And then you can do the sofrito, the onions, the garlic, whatever you want. And I do onions low and slow, so that may take 15 minutes or 10 minutes to do. But you can get that way you can get the ground meat, whatever it is, cooked exactly the way you want it. 
and then add it back later. That's what I would do. Well, and not only that, it's sort of like when you add the onions and the garlic, which are wet ingredients, it's sort of like you're deglazing the pan. So if anything from the ground beef, you know, accumulated in the bottom of the pan, you're going to bring it up with that wet onion. So I agree with Chris. I would do it beef first, then onion, and I'd add the garlic sort of towards the end so it doesn't get too dark. If you cook, if you stir-fry, use a wok, the protein is usually the thing that goes in first, a very similar method. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. (laughs) All right. Give it a shot. See if you like it. All right. Can I ask, like, one other question? Sure. So I've been seeing a lot of recipes about using brown butter, and I was wondering if I have to start with regular butter, like unsalted cold butter, or can I get brown butter from ghee? I think ghee has the milk solids already strained out, right? Right. The difference between ghee and... So clarified butter is you melt the butter... You get rid of the top layer, which is this scum, and then you pour off the butter oil, which is clear butter oil, and then at the bottom is the milk solids. That's clarified butter. But if you keep simmering the butter after you've melted to the clarified point where Mm -hmm. it separates in three layers, if you keep simmering it, what happens is the milk solids at the bottom end up getting quite toasted. And right. the water in the milk solids evaporates, and it flavors the butter oil, so it tastes toasty. But what makes brown butter toasty is the actual milk solids. So if you start with ghee, you've oh. already eliminated them, so you're not going to get what you want. You really do need to start with whole butter. Okay. All righty, then. Would you, that's, Chris, that's, do you agree? agree? Do, do, do I do agree? <laughs> Uh, yeah. let, let, let me clarify. Yeah. Oh, dear. Yes, oh, I saw This is getting really two, bad. Two for two. <laughs> yeah, well, one thing we found in most of you recently is there's a lot of flavored geese that have sort of a garlicky or onion flavor. There's lots of different kinds of flavors these days, so it is something to look at for cooking because it won't burn yeah. as easily as It has a much butter. higher smoke point than um, milk. I but mean, than but brown whole, butter, whole just butter. start with butter and you'll get there. Yeah. So. Okay. All there right, you go. Then. Thank you so much. All right. Okay. Take care. Good luck. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. You're listening to Milstreet Radio. Up next, we're chatting with Chef Angie Marr, co-owner of the iconic Beatrice Inn, also author of Butcher and Beast. That's coming up in just a moment. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash post. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. 
You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Most Your Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Chef Angie Marr, co-owner of New York City's Beatrice Inn. Marr's new book is titled Butcher and Beast, Mastering the Art of Meat. Angie, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. I'm desperate to go eat at the Beatrice Inn um, (laughs) after reading your book. Uh, But let's start with the inn itself. Uh, How long has it been around? What were the different uh, iterations of the inn over the years? Well, you know, it, the building was built in 1871, and um, it was one of New York's first speakeasies. So it's got a long, storied, uh, tumultuous past. You know, Fitzgerald and Hemingway and Zelda used to drink there in the in the 20s, and then it was an Italian restaurant for over 50 years. You know, if you look at it, it's just kind of been this gathering spot for so many New York characters and luminaries. It's its its just fascinating. Uh, you know, it, it turned into a nightclub. It was owned by uh, Paul Sivigny and Matt Abernack. All the it girls and models would go and party there. I, you know, I was never cool enough to get in myself. I, uh, I had to buy it to get in. That, that's, that's one expensive admission ticket. It is, isn't it? <laughs> and, and you bought it from Graydon Carter of Vanity Fair fame, I guess. I did. <laughs> Well, you know, the interesting part about that is that I didn't want to buy the Beatrice Inn. I was like, I don't want it. I want to, I want to you know, I want to find funding. I want to get my own spot. I want to do something with a little little less of a tumultuous history. Um, and the more I thought about it, you know, I thought, how often do you really get the chance to buy a piece of New York history? Right. So that's why we took the leap. So family, and you point this out in the book, is very important mm-hmm. to you. Uh, it, it, I'd just like to go through some of your history. It's pretty interesting. You said in the 1920s, your grandfather came to the States to work on the railroad. Uh, mm-hmm. Then he had accumulated a sizable amount of wealth, but by his death had either gambled it or loaned it all away. Mm-hmm. Uh, wh- what was his history? Wh- after the railroad, what did he do? <laughs> uh, you know, I don't really know a lot about him. Uh, my my grandfather, because, you know, my, my father didn't really even know him. My father was the youngest of 10, and he he died when my father was three. Mm. I mean, my aunt was Ruby Chow, and um, she was just a, a tremendous force in, you know, in my life, in a lot of people's lives. I mean, she was uh, a huge restaurateur in Seattle and later became an, a politician. But it, it's really interesting when you think about it, because... My family comes from the restaurant industry, right? But they didn't get into it by choice. They got into it by force because it was the 40s and and after the war, if you were Chinese in America, you could do one of two things. You could work in restaurants or you could have a laundromat. You said your father also worked at Ruby Chow's Mm -hmm. uh, and washed dishes (laughs) alongside Bruce Lee and shook hands with Frank Sinatra, Sidney Poitier, and Sammy Davis Jr. So... That's yeah. where he got his training. 
Yeah. Well, my dad, yeah, my dad, uh, you know, he was just, just getting out of the Navy and he, yeah, he was cooking and washing dishes, you know, in the family restaurant. And my Aunt Ruby, she was the oldest. And so it was really kind of like up to her to take care of the family, you know? So you open this restaurant, the Beatrice Inn. Pete Wells shows up. Uh, review comes out, uh, which, of course, is the make-or-break moment. Um, yeah. And one of the things, I think this is from his review, which I just read, Ms. Marr cooks animals, of course, but she also cooks for animals. What did he mean by that? You know, it's probably the nicest thing that anybody's ever said about yeah. my food. You know, he understood that there's cooking that makes you think, and then there's also cooking that really makes you feel. And... The kind of food that I want to cook, I want it to take you back to, like, those primal instincts, right? Or it's just meat and fire. And when Wells wrote that review, it really gave me the confidence to be who I was in the kitchen and cook the food that I was passionate about. Well, obviously the most famous dish, you know, I'm going to ask you about is this um, long-aged, bourbon-aged beef um, yeah. Explain to me, it's 160 days, whiskey-aged mm-hmm. tomahawk ribeye. Why is it controversial and why 160 days? Well, so this steak is kind of like one of the most polarizing dishes in, in the industry. And, um, you know, and I, and I love that because I feel like, you know, if, if everybody loved what we did, then we'd be mediocre, right? We've got to, like, create a little waves because that's how you know you're doing something new. So that steak is, it's first of all, it's a technique. The whiskey aging is a technique that I picked up in Paris from a butcher by the name of Yves-Marie Le Bourdignac. So we actually take whole sides of beef and wrap them in cloths that have been soaked with a French single malt whiskey. Mm. You know, and it sits and we change out the cloths and re-soak them and, you know, all the things over the span of 160 days. It's pretty much absorbing a full bottle of single malt whiskey a week. Of course, it's expensive. And the interesting part about it, Chris, is that, you know, that's not even an item that we don't even make any money off of that. I do that for that's a pure vanity project for me just because I have fun with it and because it's a dish that nobody had ever done before in the States. Creme brulee in a marrow bone, another Mm -hmm. thing that struck my fancy. You want to talk about that? Sure. <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's a fun dish. It's, uh, you know, it's really interesting. I, I had my very first James Beard dinner, and um, I'm thinking, okay, well, if I'm doing an all-beef dinner, i got to come up with a dessert with beef. So we make this bone marrow bourbon creme brulee, and, and, you know, we think it's delicious, great. But I hold it in my pocket for maybe two months before this dinner, and I don't, don't show it to anybody. I don't cook it for anybody. I just know that it's ready. And I get all this beef smuggled in, this illegal beef smuggled in. But how do you smuggle in illegal beef, by the way? Oh, I had people, like, putting it in suitcases. and (laughs) it was Yeah, it was good. And uh, they just were so obsessed with this bone marrow bourbon creme brulee. And it's, it's, you know, it's been a signature on our our menu ever since. You're very emotional about food. Um, I am. Which I like. Uh, when you first ate a long-aged steak, the, the quote is, I think that might have been the first piece of beef to actually make me cry. Yeah. Um, could you talk about emotion and eating? 
Yeah, I um you know, I think the world is kind of divided into into two different types of people. I think that there's people that eat to live and then I think that there's people that live to eat. And um for me everything starts around a dinner table. And as a creative, as a cook, you know, there's food that I eat that just pisses me off because I'm just like, I'm so angry I didn't think of this. It's so good, you know? And and that's the kind of thing that I'm always chasing. I want people to sit and have my food and just be pissed off because it's that good. That's the perfect statement from a chef. I want people to eat my food and be pissed off. Um, a lot of people talk about restaurants in different ages. You know, the, the original restaurant revolution in America started in the 80s and now there's a was second revolution in the early 2000s with the smaller towns like Portland, Oregon coming alive. And now people are talking about well, maybe it's the end of the second era. Um, do you care about any of that? It doesn't sound like you could care less about that. You just care about your food and cooking your food. You know, <clears throat> you know that's a, is a yes and no question for me. I um I do care about my food and I do care about cooking, but I also care about what happens to our industry. We've got this whole generation that's living in this instant gratification. You know, I want a promotion. I want to go make a name for myself now. But I don't think that a lot of them have spent enough time with, you know, the nitty-gritty side of actually running a business. And if we're not teaching the people that are working for us now how to do these things, and if they're not actually taking the time to learn these things, that's what's going to be the death of our industry. Yeah, I've been doing my business for over 40 years, and I'm <laughs> still walk in every day and realize how much I don't know. Exactly. Um, right. That's the thing. And that, you know, but that's the thing is that I'm still learning myself. Sure. But for the younger kids that are in, in my restaurant today, I want to just make sure that they're set up for success later on because at the end of the day, their success will be my success. If I'm not sending cooks and bartenders and front of the house staff and psalms, if I'm not sending them out into our industry prepared, knowledgeable, and also just good people, then I've not done my job. And it won't matter what I've, you know, any cookbooks or anything else that I do, right? But you also write a lot about family in your book, uh, mm. about how your family's, you're going back to the Great Depression, had to scrape by and work together and, and you still have family around you. That, that's the mm -hmm. same thing. You're talking about loyalty, right, and taking the time to get good at something. So that it's not just, you know, a job. It's also deeper than that with you. It is. Yeah, it is very much deeper than that. And, and you know, uh, the Beatrice very much is a family. We do family meal every day. You're required to make a really great family meal every day. And we all sit down. We do one long table in the restaurant at 4 o'clock every single day. Hmm. And it's front of the house, back of the house, dishwashers, hostesses, does not matter, managers, everyone. Everyone sits at the same table every day at 4 o'clock. And we have family meal together because that whole idea of like we're all going to sit at the same table and enjoy a meal together is something that I think is fundamental in the health of any restaurant. It starts there. Angie, it's been um, a really a great pleasure having you on Milk Street. Thank, thank you so much thank for being you. here. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. 
That was Chef Angie Marr, her new book is Butcher and Beast, Mastering the Art of Meat. Pete Wells once wrote about Angie Marr, she cooks animals for animals, meaning that food needs to be primal, messy, and eaten with the hands. It's not an intellectual exercise. You know, food reminds us that we are, at our core, animals. And it would seem the gap is narrowing now that scientists report that dolphins, crows, and even sea otters can, in fact, use tools. So what does separate us from animals is cooking and cooking well. Sea otters just aren't very good at creme brulee. Right now, I'm heading into the kitchen of Milk Street to chat with Catherine Smart about this week's recipe, Tunisian chickpeas with Swiss chard. Catherine, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Today, we're going to combine chickpeas with Swiss chard, unlikely bedfellows, I guess. Does this recipe have a long tradition somewhere in the world? You know, Chris, it has a tradition in many parts of the world. So we specifically were looking at Paula Wolfert's Mediterranean cooking. She has a really wonderful recipe for this. And yes, this is a Tunisian-inspired dish, but it turns out that there's variations of this from all over. So in Egypt, they add a little bit of cinnamon. If you were to look at this dish in Spain, there's usually some cured ham. There's many different variations of this hearty chickpea stew that has Swiss chard. So what do we start with, the Swiss chard, or do we start with the chickpeas? Well, actually neither. We start by building a flavor base with some onion and garlic, tomato paste, coriander, and cumin. So you saute that in a large Dutch oven. Okay. Once that's cooked down, we add the chickpeas, which are canned, because of course we want this to be really fast and easy. And then we add tomatoes and also their juice. And this is when we add the charred stems. And that's because if you were to add the stems and the leaves at the same time, you'd either have overcooked leaves or undercooked stems. Those take about 10 minutes to soften. So you add a cup of water and scrape up all the brown bits to deglaze the pan. And then we just let that simmer away. And then here comes the fun part. Uh, we add the pork. No. Oh. <laughs> There's no pork this time. Uh, but we get to use a potato masher and take out all the stress of the day by just kind of mashing that up. You do want to leave some texture in there, so some of the chickpeas whole. And then the last thing, Chris, we finally add the greens. So these go in at the very end because, of course, we want them to cook and wilt down, uh, but we don't want them in there this whole time getting kind of sad. So you should know it's going to look like a lot of greens, Chris, but they cook down quite a bit. So I have to thank you for something. You didn't mention Swiss chard and health in the same sentence. Thank you very much. We're just doing this for flavor. Just for flavor. Thank you. So Tunisian chickpeas with Swiss chard. Canned chickpeas use the stems as well as the leaves, and it takes less than half an hour. Thank you, Catherine. Thanks, Chris. You can get this recipe for Tunisian chickpeas with Swiss chard at 177milkstreet.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Dan Pashman says Halloween isn't just for kids. He shares his tips for how adults can get more out of it. We'll be right back. This is Christopher Kimball. You may have heard that we just started running international culinary tours. And one trip I am particularly excited about is Istanbul, which is based in part on my recent visit. Along with our partners at Culinary Backstreet's, we put together an itinerary that goes way beyond the Grand Bazaar. This May, we'll visit local neighborhood markets, take a sail up the Bosporus, and harvest vegetables from farms in the city's ancient moats. You'll sample Turkish cheeses, flatbreads, pistachios, pomegranate molasses, and olive oil. And since this is, in fact, a Milk Street trip, you'll use those ingredients in hands-on cooking classes with local families and chefs. There are just three spots left on our May trip, so visit 
177milkstreet.com slash tours. That's 177milkstreet.com slash tours to claim your spot. Plus, listeners to our radio show save 5% with code Istanbul. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, Sarah Malt and I will be answering more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Molly. Molly, where are you calling from? Near St. Louis, Missouri. It's in Illinois, but if I say Illinois, you'll think I'm a Cubs fan. I'm a Cardinals fan. Oh, geez. Well, let's get that straight. (laughs) Okay, then. (laughs) What is your question today? All right. So I am an engineer. My brain is a little scientific, but I was thinking about ingredients. And when I make something, if all the ingredients are safe at room temperature, once I combine them together into whatever concoction, shouldn't the final product also be safe at room temp? I am guilty of strictly adhering to expiration dates, sometimes to a detriment. So I tend to err on the side of caution. That's my question. There's an easy answer to the, your question, which is no. Let me give you two examples of things where this doesn't work. Okay. Garlic and oil. If you like garlic sit in oil at room temperature, you can get the growth of bacteria. And two, potatoes are fine at room temperature. You store them around 44 degrees. But if you cook potatoes to make a potato salad, even without the dressing, it's not the dressing, it's the potatoes. And if they sit around at room temperature a long time, they can also grow bacteria. So just because something is raw at room temperature, it doesn't mean if you cook it, it can remain at room temperature. Or two, if you combine things like garlic and oil, you can end up in trouble. So the clear answer is no. If you're someone who likes to err on the side of being safe, just say no to this one because because you never know what could go wrong. Yeah. Usually I'm laughed at for um, being safe, but wow, I'm comforted. I feel better. Well, the only thing I'll leave you with is the expired dates. I just, this Saturday, I had some half and half that had an expired date a month from now. And I usually take a little whiff, you know, of dairy before I pour. I poured it and I made this beautiful cup of coffee with a Uh top of the stove espresso maker. I was so excited and I ground the beans just right. I had this beautiful mug of coffee and I poured it in and, you know, the curdle lumps cottage cheese came out. It wasn't oh. supposed to expire for a month. And yeah, so that probably meant it wasn't stored yeah. well in so transit. To something, this, yeah, something happened. So yeah. the expiration dates you can't always trust. Anyway, both ways. Uh, Molly, be safe. Yes, yes, be Molly. <laughs> okay. Thank well, you. Huge fan here, and it was so fun. Thanks for having me on, Chris. Yeah, and Sarah. our Thank pleasure. You. Thank you. <laughs> okay, Take Molly. Care. Bye. This is Milk Radio. If you have a culinary mystery, please give us a ring. 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Katie calling from Cleveland. How are you? I'm doing fine today. Thank you. How can we help you? So I have this thing going on that whenever I use my like electric pressure cooker, mm-hmm. it seems like however I feed it in the beginning with salt, by the time I actually go to eat it, the salt is gone. And I'm just wondering if there's something happening with the pressure that's breaking down the structure of the salt or something that just makes you not be able to taste it as well. 
Well, in a pressure cooker, do you end up with a lot more liquid than you start with because of the liquid coming out of the food? Mm-hmm. So that simply might dilute the salt levels. So you have more liquid than you started with, which is typical. And you obviously want to taste it before you serve it, so you you add some more salt. But that's my guess is that that liquid coming out of the roast or whatever it is. Uh, well, it has nowhere to go because it's hermetically it's sealed. Yeah. So you're going to end up right. with more liquid, and therefore the salt ratio is going to be lower per spoonful okay. of whatever you're eating, I would guess. Yes? Yes, absolutely. So I think you need to up the amount of salt that you add to begin okay. with. Okay, so that would make sense. Even in the case if it were something like beans that aren't releasing liquid, it's still not evaporating like it would if you were cooking it in a regular pot on the stove. Is that incorrect? That is a tough question. Well, first of all, it's not a problem because you can always, no matter how you cook, pressure cooker, slow cooker, Dutch oven, you're going to taste it before you serve it. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, you always adjust salt at the end. I, I don't think I've ever cooked anything where I didn't adjust something at the end, right? Right. Exactly. But if there is woefully not enough salt to begin with, you Doesn't can't really cannot season it properly no. at the end, which is why when people say, oh, I don't add salt to anything. I just let everybody add their own salt. <laughs> well, that does not yeah. work. It's like a P.S., it mm-hmm. just does not work. There's an underlying question here I cannot answer, which is because of the physics of a pressure cooker, does that somehow diffuse the perception of saltiness in a right. dish? Does it do something to the sodium chloride in some way? And I don't know the answer to that. Mm-hmm. I wonder about that because, you know, when you eat like a canned soup or something, how, you know, it'll say there's a ton of sodium in it, but when you actually go to sink it, it doesn't taste all that salty. And I would just wonder... You know, if there's something in the canning process with the pressure or, you know, when you use your pressure cooker at home, it's changing the sodium. But I guess I have to get some more research about that. Well, well, it could be the perception of saltiness is changed somehow by the cooking method, but I have no mm-hmm. idea why that would be. I don't think so. I mean, it's the same thing with the slow cooker, where if you have a good slow cooker and it's tightly sealed, you don't, you know, they always say use less liquid because mm-hmm. there's no evaporation. When it evaporates, you lose the water, and that means you concentrate the flavor in whatever the liquid is, and that includes the salt. So I think it's that nothing's escaping. There's no water being evaporated. Are you using recipes developed for pressure cookers, or are you adapting recipes? Um, I'm not using recipe. I'm just kind of cooking. It could be that for a recipe developed for the pressure cooker, it's fine. But if you're adapting recipes, as uh, Sarah's pointed out, there's no evaporation, and therefore you're going to need need more salt. Yeah, that's okay. what I really think yeah. it is. Okay. Well, that's wonderful. I really appreciate your help. Thanks All right. for calling. Thanks for calling. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Now it's time for some cooking inspiration from one of our listeners. Hi, my name is Peter, and here's my tip. When you season raw meat before roasting or frying, do it on a cutting board placed in a clean sink. That way you keep your countertop free from meat juices and seasoning sprinkles. It makes for super easy cleanup. If you'd like to share your own culinary hack or secret ingredient on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's regular contributor and troublemaker, Dan Pashman. Dan, how are you? I'm all right, Chris. I'm uh, enjoying the turn to fall, getting ready for Halloween. Well, you're old enough, you know, not to get dressed up in costumes and get a fake pumpkin full of candy. So when you get ready for Halloween, what exactly do you do? Well, I, I do still look forward to eating a lot of candy. I mean, do you not eat candy, Chris? Uh, I don't actually eat too much candy. I like sweets, but uh, no, I, I don't eat too much candy anymore. 
Haven't you recently had two kids who will who are or will soon be trick or treating? Why did you have them if not to get more Halloween candy? Well, that's why I had them, but I have to wait a couple of years. <laughs> I mean, good things come to those who wait. You know the expression, right? I, right. I, I, I do. I do like marshmallow. You know, chocolate covered marshmallows, that kind of thing. I'm more of an Easter candy guy. Yeah, got it. Got so, it. so what do you do for Halloween? Well, so, I mean, I have young kids, so I get to eat a lot of their candy, um, you know, because, you know, it would be unhealthy, you know, for them to have quite so much sugar. So I'm just looking out for them, really, Mm -hmm. uh, by eating most of their candy for them. You know, my (laughs) wife and I work together because we're very concerned parents. Yeah, right. But I want to share with you, Chris, my three tips for how grownups can get more out of Halloween. Get more of their kids' candy out of Halloween or more out of Halloween? More enjoyment and pleasure in general, but yes, that's part of it. All right. So if you have young kids, eat a lot of their candy. But if you don't have young kids, I want you to take a lesson from my Aunt Meryl. Auntie Meryl lives down in Houston, Texas. She has three pit bulls, and she takes one of her pit bulls, and she dresses it up like a princess Uh with a tiara and all that. And she she walks her pit bull around the neighborhood and shows up at people's doors on Halloween and says, oh, this is Katie. This is Princess Katie. Katie and I are here to do an inspection of your candy. And, you know, it's really strange. People, a lot of people just give her and the pit bull candy and are very happy to keep Meryl pacified. And uh, she ends up with quite a haul, even with no kids. So that's one tip. If you don't have kids, get yourself a pit bull. This is going to be a terrific list, Dan, I can tell. (laughs) Second tip I have for you, Chris, I don't know if you find this at the Milk Street Kitchen, if this happens to you, but kids get so much candy these days that the parents bring a lot of the candy into work. Yeah, that does happen. Yeah. Right. And so I want to, maybe you can help me with this movement. I want November 1st declared, take your kids' candy to work day. That's pretty good. I mean, the, the other thing people do, which I think is even more volume, is all the candy they bought they did not give away. What do you give out at your house, Chris? What, what, what do all the little kids in the neighborhood come scurrying to find at the Kimball household? Uh, we actually turn out all the lights. <laughs> <laughs> and no, no, we actually do put a big ball of candy out, but we, we go to our, uh, my sister-in-law's uh, in the next town and go out with her kids. So we're, we're not actually at our house for Halloween. And, and I do dress up, by the way. Really? What do you yeah. dress up as? This is a big plot twist here. I did not see that coming. We did Victorian. I did that. I had an actual Victorian three-piece suit. Uh, nice. I've, I've done the corpse thing, you know. We did that one year with the white makeup and everything. Wait, they made you look paler? Yeah, I know. That's hard to imagine. Um, <laughs> b- b- uh, but I, I was actually the Grinch last year. Did you Did you wear anything for that? No, uh, I didn't really have to dress up for that, but I did. So, okay, so November 1st is... Bring your kids' candy to the office. And your third rule of Halloween is? My third and final tip for how grown-ups can get more out of Halloween is, and I think you're going to like this one, Chris, put your pumpkin to good use. You know, like, like, first of all, when you carve it, roast the seeds. I love roasted pumpkin seeds. How do you roast your pumpkin seeds, Chris? What's your recipe for that? Uh, I go to the supermarket to the bag that says roasted pumpkin seeds. <laughs> Oh, come on. I don't roast my own you don't pumpkin have, seeds. There's, there's no Milk Street recipe for that? You can buy roasted pumpkin seeds, and they're fine. Oh, all right. Well, I like to roast my own, and I'm going to gloat because it's probably the one area in which I'm like yeah. more artisanal and crafty than you are. But um, but then there's a lot of things you can do with the pumpkin, like after it's been sitting out. Like, don't throw it out. Don't make garbage. You can puree the pumpkin. You can use it in soups or muffins or no, pies. No, 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 no. You, you have to buy, like, a sugar pumpkin. The jack-o'-lanterns are not meant to be eaten. It's a different breed. It's a different genus. 
Can't you do something with it? Don't throw it out, Chris. Well, if you live in the country, deer love pumpkin, actually, as I learned one year when I grew my own. You can put them out for the deer. But if you live in suburbia, I think you're kind of stuck with letting it rot in your front step or throwing it out. You can't puree it and just add some sugar and cinnamon, sell it to Starbucks. They can put it in the pumpkin spice latte recipe. No, 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 no. It's a totally different pumpkin. The ones that you use for cooking? I mean, it doesn't mean you couldn't use it. Oh, well. Well, that's why I come to you, Chris, to set me straight on culinary matters. So, <laughs> Steal your kid's candy, bring it to work, everything will work out. Awesome. Dan Pashman on uh, the three ways to celebrate Halloween. Thank you, Dan. Happy Halloween, Chris. That was Dan Pashman of The Sporkful. Earlier in the show, Deborah Ager's report on collecting beer cans got me thinking. So I googled expensive collectible beer cans and found a Michael Jackson Dangerous Tour unopened Pepsi can from the United Arab Emirates priced at, hold on to your hat, $200,000, and they offer free local pickup. It's advertised as, quote, a world-class museum piece and one of the, quote, rarest collectibles in the entire universe. You know, we like to throw out our junk. We wait a few years, dig it up, and sell it for more than we paid for it. Oh, wait, I think I just described the antiques business. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or want to binge listen every single episode, you can download Milk Street Radio on your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can find our recipes, watch the new season of our television show, or order our latest cookbook, The New Rules, recipes that will change the way you cook. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks, as always, for listening. Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Stephanie Cohn. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugars. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Haley Fager and audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chubab Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. <laughs> <laughs>